Welcome to the Adulting is Easy podcast, where we make adulting easier by making money easier. This is your host, Lauren. Please take a second and hit the follow button wherever you're listening. If you can safely do so, leave a review once you've listened, only if it's five stars. Just kidding. Leave a review, though. I'm joined today by Sarah Glidewell. Sarah started STR Arbitrage in October 2019. She went from one to four units in March of 2020, the week the pandemic hit. And her properties were in downtown Dallas, of all places, where travel absolutely came to a screeching halt. Even with an extremely bumpy start, she's since continued refining her arbitrage portfolio, built a design business with her best friend, joined a startup called Superhost Labs, and has entered the ownership game. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Our goal for today is to make adulting easier for our listeners by discussing a personal finance topic, since managing money is a huge part of adulting. Today, our topic is real estate, and we're diving into the short-term rental space with STR Arbitrage. Finally, you guys have been asking for it. I'm sure you're excited about it. Sarah, why don't you kick us off? Tell us what short-term rental arbitrage even is. Yes. So I first got involved in rental arbitrage about three years ago at this point. And rental arbitrage, in short, is where you are short-term renting an apartment or a space that you don't own. So what it looks like is you rent a space from a landlord, you furnish it, you supply it, you photograph it, and then you re-rent it on Airbnb. So why would a landlord want to do that? Yes, that is by far one of the most common questions we get. And honestly, as a first time host three years ago, I was so, so scared to start presenting this to landlords because I didn't understand why they would let us do it. Um, But in reality, now that I'm more familiar with the real estate game and more familiar with the landlords that we've worked closely with, I totally understand why they do it. So there are a few reasons. Um, One, a lot of times people will assume like, hey, if if you're a landlord and you have a property, why wouldn't they just short-term rental it themselves? But short-term rentals are significantly more busy on the back end or require a lot more work on the back end than long-term rentals do. So a lot of long-term rental hosts really want something that's completely passive where they can kind of set it up and forget it. And short-term rentals really isn't that unless you're outsourcing the management. And even then it's still got, you know, quite a bit of um, maintaining to do. So, you know, one, if a landlord really wants it to be passive and doesn't want to, you know, deal with the chaos of short-term rentals, that's kind of a perfect match for us. Two, a lot of times people will assume that um, short-term rentals will turn their property into a party space. And it totally can if you're dealing with an inexperienced host. But if you're dealing with a host who really wants to operate a, a great business and wants to you know, kind of target a higher-end clientele, it doesn't bring in any parties really at all. In fact, it you know oftentimes gives their property in that location a lot more exposure to people who otherwise wouldn't have been in that area. And then also we you know keep the property in like new conditions. So when you're thinking about a landlord, a lot of times landlords um, go through a period when they have a tenant move out where their property is just destroyed. <laughs> you know, we've all gone through periods of our life where we've been renters, and I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with what that property looks like after we've been living in it for a year, two years, three years. And so with short-term rentals and 
being a landlord who's hosting someone who wants to arbitrage, we have these properties professionally cleaned and kept in spick and span condition the entire time we're running the property. So it doesn't seem or it doesn't see the same wear and tear that a typical tenant would. Um, And we also, you know, have motivation to kind of hold their hand or help the landlord maintain the property outside of like a typical tenant's responsibility. So we're just as motivated to make sure that the lawn is well kept, that the outside of the property looks good, that the parking lot is nice. Um, So it ends up kind of turning into a really beautiful partnership in a lot of in a lot of ways. So um, we just try and, you know, present it to the landlord in a way where we understand what their pain points are at the beginning, that they don't want parties, that they don't want to, you know, get into a situation that requires them more time. And we just address those things and tell them how we're going to prevent it. And, you know, some still say no, but some of them say yes, and they turn into really great relationships. On the flip side, why would you want to rent and not own? Yeah, great question. So, Now we're kind of shifting into the ownership game, but arbitrage, um, some people will do it, you know, some people will start an arbitrage and they'll carry arbitrage through the, the extension of their Airbnb career. There are some really big names in the space that exclusively arbitrage. For me in particular, I started an arbitrage because I didn't have the capital that was required to start an owned property. I had $20,000 and I could either put a down payment with no budget for furniture at all on a property, or I could take that $20,000 and I could rent a few properties that only required a small security deposit and furnish them and have multiple properties immediately as opposed to one property that was going to take me significantly longer. So for me, arbitrage was kind of a stepping stone in the overall Airbnb game. And it also doesn't require you know the same loan process. It doesn't take as long. It doesn't necessarily require you to have great credit or or a high paying W2 job or, you know, things like that. So it's a lower barrier of entry, I would say, into real estate um, that a lot of people will take advantage of as kind of a first step. I get asked about it a lot. And I'm really glad you're here because I didn't do that. I actually was looking to house hack, which means live in part of the property, rent the rest out. I actually was looking to do long term rentals, just happened to buy in a tourist area and ended up kind of getting into short-term rentals a little bit by accident for, you know, for that reason. And so I kind of skipped that arbitrage step, but I know a lot of people start there. So I'm so glad you're here. Um, Do you pay the landlord more than they were asking for in rent? Ooh, great question. It varies. So we try and leave that as kind of a last stitch negotiation. Um, In my opinion, you know, looking now and talking with and being so close with so many landlords, I like fully understand our value at this point. And I mean, it's not like every single host is me, right? There are bad hosts and there are nightmare scenarios that happen for landlords who allow short-term rental hosts to come in and occupy their space. But for me at this point, I will not offer more to pay more in rent just because I know that I'm a value add for them. Whereas when I first started, I didn't have other landlords that they could reach out to and have conversations with as a reference. I didn't have a huge track record of, you know, five-star reviews and all this stuff that helps me negotiate against having a higher rent. So at the beginning, I did pay an additional fee. I think it was about $100 a month, which still, you know, wasn't cutting into the 
profits enough for me to really scoff at. But we just negotiate on so many other points now, like the fact that we have it professionally clean, like that we'll help them maintain their property, like that we have security cameras on the outside of the property, things like that, um, before we actually get into talking about a different price. That makes sense. What about, I know you said you help them maintain too. So let's say, for example, I got a call this week that one of these smoke detectors was going off. And that's something that needs to kind of be handled like right then. And I don't know if long-term rental landlords would have as much urgency as short-term rental landlords, (laughs) short-term rental hosts, I should say, because there's reviews involved and things like that. So do you do any extra maintenance because there's like a time constraint comparatively to long-term rentals? Yep, that's exactly it. So, you know, any big things like if we needed um, the lawn mowed more consistently or whatever else, or we had some sort of a complaint on the outside of the house that wasn't urgent, we would kind of defer that to the landlord as it is like typically their responsibility anyway. But you're right for like smoke detectors or like say the toilet stops flushing or, or something that needs immediate assistance, we will just outsource that within our company, right? We'll just, you know, we'll have handymen that are on call or sometimes our cleaners will kind of double dip and they'll have a husband or somebody that like wants to make an extra buck. Um, And we keep them on our Rolodex so that we can have great customer service and we don't have to be annoying to our landlord. (laughs) Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned security cameras too. That's a huge thing that I would absolutely love to have. And it's something that I do have. I have the long-term rental units that I have are in the same building as my short-term rental units. So it kind of is really nice to have it for those reasons. Whereas if it was just long-term rentals, I probably wouldn't have installed them. So it sounds extra awesome if somebody else would do it for me. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, the benefit of having those security cameras too, aside from just like security purposes is we always put a ring doorbell on like right outside the front door of every single property that we do. Um, And you can talk through those ring doorbells. So a lot of times there's a lot of anxiety around travel, right? Like unless you're an avid traveler, travel comes with a certain level of stress. And so that initial moment of having somebody come into your property I mean, if you've used Airbnb avidly in the past, I'm sure you've run into the issue of like a code not working or or a, a key not being able to be found or whatever else. And people just get really frazzled on that check-in process. And so having those ring doorbells there allow you to kind of go through that experience with each guest. And so if you see that they're struggling before they even get to a point of like taking out their phone and like reaching out to you, um, you can just talk through that ring doorbell and you can say, hey, you know, you're doing fine. Like give the code uh, two minutes because you've, you know, expired your tries and let's try it again in a minute. And it, it plays into that customer service side as well. Yeah, that's an excellent ad. So Sarah, you said you started with about $20,000. How did you save that $20,000 initially? Yeah, good question. So when three years, maybe even four years before we started in short-term rentals, um, me and my husband and then my husband's business partner um, worked on building an insurance agency. And so we really just doubled down on that for several years before and it started really taking off. And so my husband and I both being entrepreneurial, my husband was like, Sarah, I want to retire you in, in June of 2021. And we were at a financial place that, that looked like that was feasible. But for me personally, being, you know, not wanting to be a stay-at-home mom, not really wanting to be a mom in general, really loving my work, I was like, that sounds 
horrible. <laughs> Retirement at a young age honestly sounds horrible. Um, and so we kind of made this deal where I was like, okay, if you make the money, I'll make the money grow. And so we structured our finances to where we would just live on his income. And we took my income and we were like, all of the income, 100% of what I make, we will see how we can grow that income. And so at the time, I was working at an architecture firm in Fort Worth. I was making $50,000 a year. <laughs> and we, I had $20,000 worth of student loans. And so when we combined finances and we kind of structured our finances in that way, the first $20,000 I made that year went towards student loans to get those paid off. And then, you know, the next few percent went to taxes in the last 20,000 we saved up over that year. And we kind of looked at different avenues to invest that 20 grand. How was I going to grow it? And I am not the type that would like enjoy investing in the stock market and staring at red and green lines all day. <laughs> I wanted something that was a little bit more creative, a little bit had more utility behind it. Um, and so we ended up, you know, saving that 20 grand and finding Airbnb arbitrage and, and just started pursuing it staring at red and green lines all day. That's hilarious. Um, and I love that too. I don't know if I've ever heard that. You make the money and I'll make it grow. I love that because I, yeah. I can relate to uh, definitely, I, I'm going to retire myself like with this short-term rental stuff. And I had that thought too. It's like, God, I could have a kid, but like, I just don't know. And I didn't want that to be the reason I was home. You know, I want to have, when I'm done with my nine to five, I want to have something that I'm doing. And right. that, and I do love it. You're so right. There's a creative aspect to it. There's a lot of reward in helping people have a fantastic time. And I walked by one of our guests the other day again because we live on the on one of our properties, and I heard them just gushing. They're like, "It's the best thing ever. This is the best place ever." And I thought, "Ah, <laughs> yes. oh, this is why I do this, right?" Um, so it can be so much more rewarding than stocks. And frankly, <laughs> it's 2022. Stocks are not being rewarding right now anyways. Um, <laughs> so also we heard in your bio that your timing kind of sucked. Yes, I, I experienced failure so fast. <laughs> um, yeah, so we had we had opened our first property in November of 2019. It was in the same apartment complex that we were living in at the time. And so we were doing all of it, right? We were doing the cleanings, we were managing it, um, and it was seeing insane profit. And so we were like, okay, we're sold. Like, we get it. Like I was just of the mindset that there was literally nothing that could stop me. I was about to be a gazillionaire. Like there was no failure headed my way. And so I signed three leases in Dallas. Um, and those leases, I signed them, I think in January and they were, I was going to start my lease March 8th. And so all of February, I spent, you know, designing these properties and getting everything in order, getting my ducks in a row. And so for the first week of March, it was just like a mad sprint to get these properties up and listed. I literally wasn't looking at the news at all. I was like buried in cardboard boxes and Allen wrenches and like putting these properties together, just thinking that my whole life was about to change in the best way possible. And so we made them all live on March 8th. And as we all know, March 16th of 2020, the entire world came to a screeching halt. And, you know, some Airbnbs did really well in the pandemic. Those Airbnbs tended to be the remote Airbnbs. And if you were in a city, you know how apocalyptic <laughs> post-COVID or right after finding out about COVID was. And so all of our 
travel came to a screeching halt. And so I watched the $20,000 that I had just invested just like start crumbling before my eyes. And I was like, oh my gosh, did I just like make the biggest mistake of my life? Did I just work six months and save up six months of income for nothing? Like what is on the other side of this for me? And so it was, it was really chaotic for a minute. (laughs) I can't imagine. And we had, I had a guest on who talked about, she was going to manage other people's properties for just 2020. And she was in Tokyo. And that was when the Olympics were going to be there. And she said, she was set to make a million dollars that year, right? And it. then it just went away. And your story, I could picture it. I, of course, I can, I can even smell it probably. The boxes <laughs> and the new paint and just getting ready. And, and I thought I had that same reaction as you were talking as I did when I was talking to Tracy, where I thought, how do you get up from that? <laughs> yeah, this is such a good question too. I mean, it was one of those moments too that again, you know, I had the option to retire, right? So we, because my husband is a Medicare salesman, um, our our income fluctuates in polar opposite ways. So when people are hurting and the economy goes down and people are making less money, that means more people are getting involved in Medicare. And so his business kind of goes up as mine goes down and vice versa. Um, so although it was like incredibly deflating, um, at that point in time, there were so many things going on in the world that were so much worse than what was going on with us that we were like, you know what? We're young. There's food on our table. We're still pursuing this dream. Like if we were going to fail, we might as well fail at the very bottom. than like when we had built up, you know, 20 properties and all of a sudden we have 20 mortgages to pay and, and COVID. And, and so at that point in time, honestly, like looking back now, I'm like, wow, that really was a huge obstacle. But at the time it was just like, in a way, like so awful that it was funny. <laughs> so we were just like, you know, I mean, people say that when you're you're an entrepreneur, the first year is the hardest. And although not, you know, not everyone has these type of obstacles, this first year is very hard. <laughs> so, um, and we got really, really fortunate with the fact that a lot of our properties were near hospitals in Dallas. And so we were able to kind of pivot it to um, midterm rentals where we were housing either people who were displaced who had family members that had COVID where they needed to like hunker down somewhere for a while or nurses that were being flown in to handle COVID to like help with all of the hospitals that were just overrun. And so they'd need somewhere to stay for a month to three months. And so it definitely cut into our profit margins a ton, right? I mean, we're not seeing, we didn't see the same profits as we were anticipating, but um, even at our worst month, we were still able to pay rent. So, you know, it was a a punch to the gut when we really thought we were, you know, getting involved in something that was going to change our lives overnight. And instead it took an extra year, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, an extra year allowed us to kind of slow down and connect with other investors and start Carwell Design and do so many other things. So I think now looking back, it was kind of a blessing in disguise. But for a minute there, I was like, whoa, <laughs> what did I do? Yeah, I experienced failures so fast. It's it's so true. And it is an interesting idea of like experiencing it up front. And I think there's this idea like if I got through that, then I'm going to be fine. We went under contract on our property, which was a commercial bed and breakfast in March, 2020, I think it was March 13th. And we were still in the inspection period. So we backed out 
and then in April renegotiated and closed. But we had a moment where we were looking at each other because we've been negotiating with this lady for like three weeks. We finally got under contract and then bam, it was like, God, the rug just pulled out from under you because you can see what was going to be. And we, we trudged ahead like you did and did what we had to do. And just like Tracy did, and that's just how it is. And that's part of entrepreneurship, right? That's part of investing basically is, you know, there's, there's risk associated with it. Yeah. 1000%. And it was just, I mean, I don't know. We've just got some sort of fire in our bellies between my husband and I that we were like, you know what, this is going to be one failure of many. So if we're going to do this, we've got to learn how to manage disappointment. And this is, <laughs> this is a big disappointment, no doubt. But like, this is the first, but it won't be the last. And so we're just going to try and keep our heads up and, and try and, you know, spin this into a positive situation. So it's just part of it. You're right. It is. And you can't be afraid to fail and learning how to fail and learning how to be resilient and then it also, I think, builds confidence too. The more you overcome, the more you're like, I don't know what would have to come to shake me at this point. And that's kind of how I see real estate investing. It's got to be one of the best confidence boosters in the world. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was that was honestly the biggest thing that we we took away from it is like, you know, our backs were against the wall and and we just had absolutely no idea how we were going to, you know, make ends meet. Were we going to be able to afford five rents all of a sudden? You know, we've got four Airbnbs plus the place that we live in. Um, and I'm still only making $50,000 a year at a at an architecture firm. So at, for a moment, I was like, oh, my gosh, am I going to be spending every single penny that I'm earning to, like, maintain my side hustle? <laughs> like, am I just going to be like a net zero type person over here where I'm just, like, working all the time to fund this sinking ship? Um and so it was in that moment where I was like, you know, reached out to Emily, my best friend. And I was like, look, I know that there are investors out there who have been waiting for a situation like this to happen, who are looking at landlords who are now desperate for tenants because nobody's moving. And if they are moving during COVID, they're moving back home because they can't afford anything. And um, and so we just decided to put our heads down and plug in with other investors and start designing for them in the interim while we were not scaling. <laughs> I was not going to sign another lease until I figured out what was going on with the world at that point. And that taught us so much. It was like going to real estate college, but we were getting paid to do it. I love that. There are so many gems in this episode. I hope people are like taking notes physically or at least mentally. Um, <laughs> so what are kind of like the best two, three, four, I'm not whatever number suits you. What are your biggest tips for people who are interested in getting started in rental arbitrage? Yeah, great question. Um, so first and foremost, rental arbitrage is absolutely a numbers game. Um, you are going to have to face rejection from landlords over and over and over again, especially at the beginning. Um, when you don't have other landlords that they can call and and ask you know, how you operate your business, when you're new to this, you just don't always have the answer, so your pitch isn't as fluid. Um, and it's good. Like that, re that rejection that people go through is necessary and nobody loves dealing with rejection, but it's, it's one of the most powerful tools to get really good at arbitrage because pitching the landlords is the scariest part, but it is the most important part. You know, you have to have a yes to, to start pursuing this. Um, 
So I would say get really comfortable with rejection. Get really comfortable with, you know, stumbling over yourself several times with pitching to landlords before you actually get good at it. And don't be afraid of that. Don't be discouraged by it. Um, You know, eventually you will get a yes. What we like to say in this household is every no is one step closer to a yes. So we rejoice in those as well. Um, Also with rental arbitrage, you don't have the same amount of control as you do with a property that you own. So um, always take that into consideration. Um, And what I mean by that is just, you know, don't overfund that arbitrage property. What I wasn't told when I first started arbitrage that I know now is the average arbitrage property in the U.S. lasts about two and a half years. And so it's a much shorter investment than per se a long, you know, a a purchased short-term rental. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, eventually landlords will see what you're doing and they're like, you know what, I think I could do this. And whatever motivation they had to allow you to do it for them, you've just done all the research for them on a property that they own that they can kick you out of at any point. And so with those properties, like, you know, we have an owned property now and that I've just like poured my heart and soul into, but I've put so much more into it because I know that it's going to withstand time a lot longer than my arbitrage properties do. So there is a finance component to it where you have to get a little bit more crafty. You know, you'll see people who have owned short-term rentals hiring interior designers and and really going all out with like huge murals and and just some really creative components in these short-term rentals. But with arbitrage, it's not always um, necessarily in your best investment <laughs> to spend a bunch of money on the front end making it this extravagant thing because in reality unless you either partly own the building that you're arbitraging in or you you know presented the deal to the landlord for them to buy the property contingent on you arbitraging it it probably won't be a super long investment so it really is a stronger balance of making sure what you what you're getting out of it you know, equates to what you put into it. Whereas with a purchased property, I mean, you'll, you'll have it forever. So you can kind of make the excuse that you can go a little more extravagant on it. (laughs) But those are some of the main ones, main points that I would make for anyone who's getting involved in arbitrage is, is those things. Absolutely. That's great. And so the property that you own, it's a short-term rental? Yep. When did you buy that? So we bought this property. It's in Michigan. Honestly, the entire purpose of us getting involved in arbitrage was to scale our cash faster. We wanted cash flow to purchase more properties and they did that. It's, I mean, and they're still running, but um, that was the main goal. So even if all the arbitrage properties collapse tomorrow, like our main goal going into it has been accomplished. So that, that portion feels really good. It's like a checked box. <laughs> but we bought this property in northern Michigan in September of last year, and we spent September through March flipping it. It was quite a fixer-upper. And then we started renting it in April. And so the house I'm currently sitting in is that property. It's We're staying in it in some of the most profitable weeks of the year, but it's mostly because <laughs> It's beautiful up here and I'm enjoying it myself. So I think that's one of the best parts of having short-term rentals is that you can you can use the properties. Also, what you were talking about, what you do for landlords, also just the properties are prettier. I I, I can take more pride in these properties than when I've had long-term rentals because there's a return on keeping them beautiful. You know, there's to some extent doing a bunch of landscaping, keeping the paint up, things like that, pressure washing constantly, all those kinds of things 
you're not incentivized to do that generally in long-term rentals. So I love the owner use ability of short-term rentals. I love how you're basically incentivized to keep the properties beautiful. So I have one last question for you. Okay. What does the future hold for short-term rentals? Yes. Like the industry as a whole, in my opinion, or my specific portfolio? I'm just curious. Yeah. The industry as a whole, where do you think it's headed? Yeah. Um, I think that Airbnb is pushing the short-term rental space into more of a creative experience space. So pre-COVID, um, when Airbnb was kind of new, it almost leaned more towards like a couch surfing situation where it was like, if you had a spare room in your house or like, you know, you have a long-term rental that's, you know, got a few pieces of furniture in it, it's good enough. It's cheaper than hotels. Um, and you get more of a local experience and we've seen it extremely evolve since then where we're something, you know, a lot of hosts have something that's more luxurious than a hotel and people are preferring Airbnbs over hotels. And, um, so in my opinion, I think Airbnb is headed more in that direction where it's not going to be, a um, this is an investment over a hospitality situation. It's going to be vice versa, where this is a hospitality situation over an investment. And so I think that people who are in the short-term rental space who are doing a subpar job and they're using it as either you know, their second vacation home that they want to make an extra buck off of or a get-rich-quick scheme, I think those people will severely be pushed out of the space. I mean, even with the update that happened in... May, I think. I think it was May 11th where Airbnb came out with uh, categories. Airbnb just like flat out said, you know, you are not going to be pushed if you do not have professional photography and some sort of, you know, unique amenity in your space. And that bows well for us because (laughs) we're interior designers, right? That's, That's who we are by trade. So for us, we want to see Airbnb move in that direction because we want to create extravagant spaces. Like above all else, what brings me the most joy is being able to like buy a property or rent a property and just pour my creative freedom into that property. And then other people get to experience it. It's like an unmatched high. (laughs) And so with Airbnb kind of announcing that they're pushing it in that direction. And then today also Airbnb released an ad um, that they are, they're running a $10 million grant for hosts. And so they're going to pick a hundred hosts and they're going to give each host a hundred thousand dollars. And with a hundred thousand dollars, they want you to create as unique of a stay as you possibly can with a hundred thousand dollars. So I think the short-term rental space is pushing away from being hotel adjacent and pushing more into a once in a lifetime experience um, style. So I think that hosts are going to be challenged more. I think that it's going to push more into development. I think that it's going to push more into one-of-a-kind stays. Um, and so we'll see where it goes. But but I'm excited with the direction that Airbnb is going because the more unique, in my opinion, the better. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and a good point that Airbnb is leaning towards experiences. And I totally agree with you that there are the hosts that got into this for maybe the wrong reasons or didn't know what they were getting into I think we are going to have some weed out. I think we're pretty high on the supply side right now. And I think the update, like you talked about, and uh, just the general trend of the market, we're going to see hosts dropping out. And I think that's, I think, I personally think that's where we're heading for sure. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Sarah, before we wrap up? Hmm. I think if I had any advice for hosts who are looking to get into it, I would say my biggest piece of advice is to just leap. 
I mean, I arguably leaped at the actual world's worst possible time to leap. And it still has absolutely been such a blessing to my life, to my business partner's life, to my husband's life, um, and to all of our guests' lives as well. So it really is a super fulfilling career path and investment, and it's got great utility and, and you have a lot of control over it. So you will make mistakes, but there's still room in this space to make mistakes. And the longer you wait, that margin for error gets smaller and smaller. So if you are someone out there who is not a host yet and has contemplated getting into it, now is as good of a time as ever. I would highly recommend starting now rather than later so that you still have room to kind of fall flat on your face and still turn a profit because it won't be that way forever. Well said. So Sarah, how should people get in touch with you? Yeah. So you can find me all over social media. (laughs) Um, You can find me on Instagram at the Carwells, V and then K-A-R-W-E-L-L-S. We're big on TikTok. We're big on Instagram. We also are building a way for investors to passively invest with us. We've been working on this project for about six months um, and we've raised $14 million so far for that portfolio. And we've got 30 properties um, all over the US that people can invest in with us. And so if you want to kind of watch that journey as we kind of let that unfold, you can find that at Superhost Labs on literally everything. So um, superhostlabs.com, at Superhost Labs on Instagram, and at Superhost Labs on TikTok as well. Um, and then you also can listen into our podcast, which is Superhost Labs by the Carwells. All right. I will put that in the show notes as always. And listeners, if you are very adept, you may remember that we had Taylor Jones on as well from Superhost Labs. That was episode 112, and that was short-term rental setup. One of our more popular episodes, very new one. And uh, you should give that a listen if you haven't already. You can follow me on Twitter at Adulting is Easy. I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Instagram at Adulting is Easy Real. You can email me at realadultingiseasy at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Hopefully, Sarah and I have made adulting a little easier for you. <laughs>